Hello everyone, you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and here today you are going to listen to an interview conducted by Kristen Lopez with the writer and director of The Lost City of Z, currently now playing in theaters, James Gray. Hello. How are you? I'm good. This is James Gray, didn't I? Yes. Did I put my homework assignment to call you? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, is I uh, messaged uh, John and asked him to confirm, and I didn't hear back. So I naturally assumed that, yeah, you would have awesome, more awesome things to do. Uh, I'm afraid that that's not the case. Now, having, not knowing you, that either means that I'm uh, in for a, a wonderful treat or, or you're in for a certain hell. I'm not sure what that uh, means. You know... I, I have- <laughs> other people who had talked to you, so I'm going to go with uh, with the, the treat part. Oh, all right. I like that. I like that. No, I, I don't have anything else to do. What do you mean? Uh, I, mean I don't know. You're, <laughs> you're the director, good sir. Um, well, I, uh, I watched uh, the movie before I, I left. I'm actually at the uh, coming home from the, the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival, so it seemed like a good lead-in. Um, so I, I guess what was the the interest for you with uh, you know doing this project and, and the book itself and I guess the origins of the the project. I was driven to the movie not by what you might expect. The whole logistical challenge of it was something that I actually thought was uh, was painful. I didn't want to go to the jungle or you know do the war. I'm, I'm a wimp, you know, I like staying in nice hotels and stuff, you know. So that wasn't an attraction at all. What was an attraction, though, was when I read that book, that character, that man was very conflicted, and that makes for a good story. You know, a person who has all of these things tugging in all different directions, that he feels insecure in so many ways, and he needs to prove himself, and I saw it really as the birth of an obsession, and that makes for very powerful drama, so I sort of accepted all the hardships of the, the film shoot uh, as a kind of a, a horrible, brutal aside to making a film about the, the birth of an obsession. Which, if, if uh, IMDB is correct, you know, you asked... Um Francis Ford Coppola, who I, of course, the name is. Can I tell you something? I is know that story not true? It's not true. And in fact, I'm, I'm so upset about it because I, I told that story to a person waiting for our cars at the valet oh. as a joke, as a joke, because what happened was a guy named Roger Corman, mm-hmm. whom Coppola apprenticed with in the yes. early, early 60s, he had said that to Francis about Apocalypse Now. And so I was sort of joking about that, and it got put in print, and it's, it's just the opposite is true. Francis is unbelievably inspiring and supportive, and he would never, ever say, don't go. He's just ter- terrific. You know, he, you'll ask him his advice, and he'll give you a whole treatise on what, to, on what he thinks you should do. So I, I kind of really, really, I, I was so, you know, perturbed about the fact that that's out there now as some sort of fact, you know, that Francis was was discouraging me. It's really not true at all. Exactly. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, man who shot Liberty the Lance, you know, Prince of, Prince of Legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it's true. It's true. Yeah. 
true, although I take the blame because I did say it, but I was kidding. You know? uh, exactly. You know, nobody gets uh, nuance, I guess, in, uh, in, in Joker anymore. But uh, what was that shoot like? You know, just to, because it's, I mean, it looks, it, everything is beautifully filmed. I mean, I was, I was telling somebody it's the most gorgeous looking movie. And, you know, I think everybody makes it look, conveys kind of the, the struggles of filming in that environment, even though it is so beautiful. So what was, filming the actual, you know, in the jungles, what was that like? It was, it was brutal. I mean, I can't really soft soap, but you know, you, uh, you go down there and you are an invader. They don't, you know, and I don't mean other people look at you askance. I mean, insects and animals do not expect you to be walking around there with camera equipment and they don't like it. You know, so you have the monkeys, the howler monkeys above you in the trees, and they throw their feces at you, and the bugs on the ground come up, you know, your pant leg and sting you, and the, the ants, which, which you know, which will attack you, and it's, it's the most painful sting you've ever felt. And you realize that um, you kind of have to accept a certain level of that in order to get your day done. And, you know, you're also hostage to the weather. Right. The, the rainstorm that comes invariably at 3 p.m., you know, that is just going to cover you with water in a way that you can't possibly imagine. Lightning bolts that'll hit you 90 feet away and mm-hmm. knock you off your feet. I mean, it's it's its own thing. And you, in a certain, the first two weeks I was there, I kind of had a fantastic uh, experience. I was sort of in it, and I thought, I'm reinvigorated. I'm doing this movie. And then after two weeks, a certain kind of madness does set in because there's a sameness to every day. You know, you get up at 4.30, you, 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 your glasses are all steamed because of the humidity. You go down to you in this you know, old van, rumble, 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 bumps, bumps around. It's still dark. You get down to the banks of the river. You get on that raft, and you either go up the river or down the river. You shoot on the water, or you shoot. You you know, you park the raft and go into the jungle. And this, after every day being the same thing in this heat, I think you start to go a little bad of yourself. Right. Well, and you know, to to throw out apocalypse now again, you know, was there anything? I, I'm assuming you know everybody asks, is what's on the screen the finished product? Is there a director's cut? You know, out there somewhere? Was there anything that you really wanted to shoot, and maybe? Because of the weather, the location, or time, you just you couldn't get to, or is what's on the screen kind of the ultimate version for you? Well, it is my cut. There will never be another, you know, director's cut thing. But your question is excellent, because there is one thing that I was not able to do, and that frustrated me, which was that in the book, he is the first person in uh, Western society to confront an anaconda. And they didn't believe him. You know, when he came back to England, he said, I saw a 50-foot snake, and they laughed at him. And they thought he was, you know, a crackpot. And I had written this whole scene where he confronts the anaconda. And I couldn't get it, because you can't shoot with a real anaconda. That's right. And the CG anaconda looked bad, and the mechanical anaconda didn't work. And after a while, I just ditched it because it didn't look good, and I couldn't do it in the jungle, and it was a real disappointment to me. But other than that, no, it, it is it is it is the film I wanted to make. Well, and I, you know, I I'm a big fan of The Immigrant. I love that movie so much. Um, and and you really, you know, when you're doing period pieces, you know, you you've worked in in this time period, and The Immigrant also has that that turn of the century. What is it for you about kind of the past? 
that is, is so fascinating? You know, sometimes we want a certain level of distance. I don't mean emotional distance, that's terrible, but I mean, you know, all of movies are essentially, I mean, they're kind of a metaphor, which is a you know, lofty word, but it's not real life, you know, it's a heightened version of real life. And what period films can do sometimes is show you more about the present than you think. It's almost like a Trojan horse. That yes, the movie takes place between 1905 and 1925 with different social mores and different concepts of what it means to be a racist, for example. But still, we battle the same ideas and issues about class and gender and ethnicity that are explained in the film. So the period allows us a little bit of distance, a little bit of relief, but hopefully reinforces uh, our present. The same thing, you know, it's weird you mentioned The Immigrant because, you know, I had made that film and uh, tried to absorb myself in the details of Ellis Island and, you know, likely to become public charge and all that. And you read the paper today, and there's the exact same discussions going on. Likely to become public charge was a phrase that I hadn't heard in forever, and it just came up about you know the new new population and the struggle that we have with uh, you know whether to accept Syrian refugees or not, and where we are as a country and our nativist uh, streak and all of this. It's the same. It is amazing. I was at, actually there was a screening yesterday of Doctor Strangelove, and I I went and saw that and. Incredible. You know, yeah, and, and Edgar Wright was there talking about how it's very prescient for the, the time period. And I hadn't seen it in, in a couple of uh, years, and I rewatched it with an audience. And I was sitting there, and everybody's laughing, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's so hard to watch that and not feel like, oh, you know, the, it, we're doomed to repeat the past. Well, 100%. Really, nothing has changed. Yeah. Except maybe, except maybe that Merkin Muffley, the president, was a little more rational than our Right. <laughs> well, and, you know, you bring up gender, which is something um, that when I was watching this, you know, you have, Santa Miller is amazing. I loved her so much in this. And she has that great moment where she's talking about comparing the, the uh, jungle, or he's trying to compare the jungle to childbirth. And she has this big right. speech about, you know, the, I just, I loved how, you actually took the time to explore the fact that, you know, she is a, a crusading woman for the time, and yet, you know, the, those experiences of the domestic sphere and the professional sphere were still so different. And, and I think you explore that as well with the immigrant, with, with Marion Cotillard's character. What is, no. what is the appeal to you, especially in terms of, you know, kind of capturing the female experience in that time, in those time periods? Well, I... It's a wonderful question. Um, I guess what I would say, without really having a canned answer for you at all, because I've not really weirdly not been asked that ever. Um, really? I, I feel like yeah. I, I'm patting myself on the back now. <laughs> well, it, it's just, you know, the sad truth is that we still ignore a lot of issues of gender and oh, yeah. on television. And I, I was very committed, certainly in the case of The Immigrant, it's all about her, but in this, I felt that the story was not the boy's tragedy. They see another side of the world. They go and they do it. Now, they die, 
but they're legendary. They disappeared, and nobody remembers her. Yeah. And she was a very evolved woman. I mean, she spoke several languages, and she could quote Shakespeare at will, and she was a suffragette, and she was a very independent woman. And I felt that it was important to emphasize her character. She was the one left alone for decades to come. Exactly, I, yeah. A very powerful idea. Well, and, and I love that you gave her, you know, that moment with, with her son where she's, you know, he kind of throws her words back at her. And there is a, a marked difference because it's the same rhetoric and the same wording. It's just different genders. And that, that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Exactly. You know, exactly right. The the Also, the point of the whole movie to me wasn't, you know, that it was going to be some guy goes to the jungle and becomes crazy. The point of the movie was actually a person who in some sense had a degree of sanity and everyone else thought he was crazy. And in the extension of that was that he began to understand a certain common humanity with the indigenous peoples in the jungle, but that that didn't stop at the door. And it also included his wife. So I felt just as we are look down on maybe the indigenous peoples as savages, we also look down as men on women. And it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same discourse, all part of the same logic. Well, and, you know, it, it was it was really funny when I was uh, on Twitter, so was, uh, you know, asking people, you know, get your questions in for James Gray. It was amazing how many young women brought up that they wanted to see this movie because you cast Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Right. right. And, and I and I guess I have to throw out the obligatory question because so many people ask, but you know, I'll I'll extend it to the rest of the cast because I'm not, you know, sixteen year old girl. But what was it like assembling, you know, you have you have two actors that have very ingrained personas, you know, um with, you know, Charlie with Sons of Anarchy and, and Robert being, you know, the Twilight guy. What was it like to kind of put them out of their, their comfort zones both physically and professionally? Yeah, well, in some ways, I mean, your question's excellent, but in some ways it's a question more for them than it is for me. I, To me, all I tried to do was adhere to the, the, truth, of, the truth of who those people were, you know, and, and basically try to get the actors to become as dedicated and committed and passionate as I, I felt they could be. They brought that passion with them. You know, sometimes you don't have to, and in this case, with both the boys... I didn't have to encourage any kind of divergence away from their persona. In some way, the actors are desperate to leave their other persona behind because you know they don't want to be typecast and they want to grow and they want to show other parts of themselves. And Rob was wonderfully open about it. You know, he grew that big beard, right? That incredible movie face. You know, and and really, uh, uh, I find a, a wonderfully bold choice. To, to disappear into that part, you know, and to be this kind of quiet but loyal and ferociously effective aide de camp. And in truth, you know, Rob was the Twilight guy in years ago. So it's a very different thing. And I think all the young girls who are clamoring to see the movie, I hope they go, of course, for, for selfish reasons. But I, they'll also see a side to him, I think, as an actor that's really growing. Yeah, I, I it was it was it was so fascinating to hear just at just at the turnout and I was kind of I said the same thing, I'm like, you know, you're getting like a really quality film as well, you know, amongst 
all the the RPAT, so to speak. <laughs> but you know, since since I am I am coming from a classic film festival, I did want to ask you, you know, because you have this, uh, you know, again this love of and and reverence for the past. But what kind of classic films inspire you as a director? You know, I watch. It's a great question because I watch a an old movie every single night. I watch a movie that's made before 1960. I mean, sometimes I'll go to the mid-60s, but every single night. My wife and kids go to bed. On comes the television. It's a form of education for me. Forgive me for chewing, by the way. But oh, I, no, no problem. <laughs> Ten minutes, I'm leaving for the airport, so I've got to eat you, Yeah, you and I both. I think we're, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm doing this, and then we're. I have to go back home. So, yeah, no, you're in good company. <laughs> good. Well, I, uh, the point point of all this is that when you watch all these old movies, you realize that they were narrative masters. Right. And they understood how to mount the story. Now, there are reasons why. I don't want to say it was easier, but there are reasons why they could do it with greater effectiveness on a more routine basis than we can. It has to do with the fact that they're shooting on a soundstage. And it has to do with a much more mechanized form of the production, so you can control it better. Right. When movies started to have to go outside, when the style of acting turned into a more method style due to Brando, the ability to control the production uh, began to slip a little bit. In addition, we don't do reshoots. You know, if you made a film, an old movie, and I'll get to your question about specific movies, don't worry, but if, if you... If you make a movie now and you screw up a part of the movie, you have to get the actors together and they're off on other projects and different parts of the world with different hairstyles or whatever. But think about what it was like in 1938 or something if you, if you made a film that had a section that didn't work. Well, what they did was all the actors were already on, under contract and still on the lot for some other movie and certainly didn't look different. Cary Grant didn't exactly grow beards and so forth. So you just took him away for the day. You went out and you reshot a section, and then you uh, cut it back into the movie. And the system really worked. Now, we wouldn't accept some of the technical issues that they had, but that's why the stories are well told. So I watch them to see how the stories are mounted. And... My taste for old movies is unquenchable. Lately, I've been really into, weirdly, I've been into Busby Berkeley movies. Oh, those are amazing. I love those. Gold Diggers of 1933 and... Well, that's an amazing movie, but, you know, that's the one with, you're wearing the money, yeah. and starts, she starts singing in, like, pig English. Pig Latin, yeah. Pig <laughs> Latin, yeah. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. I, I'm, and there is something else that... Uh, that he did, which I think may be greater. Um, if you've ever seen Go uh, Gold Diggers of 1935. I have, yes. That has that Winnie Shaw lullaby of Broadway sequence. Right. His jaw dropping. Yeah, he, I, what he was able to do, uh, I, I think, I don't know if it's Night Gold Diggers of 1935 with the piano and, yeah, and the moving. Yeah, I was just, I was flummoxed by how that was pulled. I mean, the technical mastery. Of, yeah, of all of those. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's amazing because I've been watching, um, you know, I've been kind of mixing it up. So I saw, like, you know, stuff from the 70s, like the China Syndrome and, and What's Up, right. Doc. And then I had 
classic stuff, you know, like uh, Lady in the Dark, and uh, I think we did, uh, oh gosh, what was the nitrate? We saw Laura on nitrate. So, oh, you I can, love it. oh my gosh, it was exquisite. But you can really see, you know, those two different styles of filmmaking and just how, you know, filmmaking has just changed so immensely, and yet. You know, it's it's always fun to go to the film festival like this and just see people even younger than I am who actually are appreciating classic cinema and it gives me hope. <laughs> it gives me hope for the future. That's so great. Yeah, no, it's all about storytelling. Those yeah. movies. They have the most unbelievable sense of narrative. And so you, by the way, that is called because of 3035 with the pianos coming apart, you know, all coming together. Yeah. And they're swaying like you know, you know he was a guy. Like also, you should see uh, Dames. I have, yeah, I have that one. That one's a fun one. Yeah, the one where Ruby Keeler almost becomes like a surrealist. Uh, you know, where her big her face. Her face, yeah. That oh that God. was it, that was so funny. And I'm not I'm not a big Ruby Keeler fan, but I I think she's really good in that film. Well, she's you know she's limited. I mean, she doesn't have incredible range, but. The, the the movies themselves, and they all have the same structure, right? They're sort of, for the first hour, you're sort of trying to figure out where it's going, and there's some nice musical numbers with Dick Powell, and then all of a sudden, they fall apart in a great way. They, all of a sudden, they have these musical numbers, and it's almost like the film completely deconstructs, and it becomes incredible. So I've been watching some of that, weirdly, a lot, a lot lately, a lot of Busby Berkeley, and I also, um, I really love... Uh, Late forties, early fifties noir. Oh yeah, they're, those are fantastic. Yeah. So a very, a very striking film called The Sniper, the Edward Dimitrik movie, I think from nineteen fifty one, which is uh, it's a very, very with uh, Adolf Manjou, which is a really interesting movie. Uh, yeah, you've given me recommendations. Yay! <laughs> well, right. I will, I will let you go um, so that I don't uh, mess up your airport plans. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. But thank you so much for, for taking the time out today and working with my schedule and talking to me. It's, it's been an honor. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see uh, the film do well. Hopefully all the RPAT fangirls will, will find something good in it. But I've, I've told everybody it's amazing. So I'm, well, I'm excited so to, to see the press tour continue. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, you have a great day. You too. Bye. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.